another personal favorite of the workout video based on another personal favorite story of mine when Moses raised his hands in order to win the battle. You guys ready? 10 minutes, let's go. Lift them up and pull. You wanna win those battles in life? Get your arms up, stick it up. Where, where's Josh? Where, is Josh still with us? Hey, good morning, everyone. This is what happens. You give young people a camera, and then things like that happen. Welcome to Union Chapel. We're so glad you're here uh, this morning. If uh, you'll recall, we're doing a series on, entitled God and Your Bod. And what we want to do is lay a foundation of understanding of God's original creative design and purpose for the human body. God and your body. So we want to build a theology of the body so that no matter what question comes up in history or in contemporary culture, no matter what comes up with regard to sex or marriage or gender and all of these other issues relevant in our society today, we'll have a foundation, a place to stand, a place from which we can discuss and and. And try to influence the world around us with God's best idea, purpose, and design. So we've been a couple of weeks into this series, and today we want to talk specifically about this category of singleness and celibacy. Singleness and celibacy. It's a very relevant topic. We have lots of single people in our culture today, and so I hope it'll be meaningful to you. I've chosen as our text this morning from Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, and this is an occasion when some Jewish leaders, Sadducees, approach Jesus and ask him another question. We've seen this now a couple occasions in this series, and so we'll learn from it as we go. Mark chapter 12, I'll begin reading at verse 18. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word. Thank you for doing that as you're able. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children... The man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It's the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. So here's the question. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? It's a wild question, right? Now note the first verse in this passage is the Sadducees who do not believe there is a resurrection, and now they ask the question, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And so these guys are full of it. Jesus replied, you are, not, are you not in error because you do not know the scripture or the power of God? 
When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Now may God inspire and instruct us today through his word. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Now we've been learning some things at a theological level about the human body. Now, you understand that a subject like this, that you, you, you would tackle a subject around theology, is, is kind of heavy lifting. And so preparing these messages, you know, is, is, is laborious, and hearing them takes some work too. And so you, you, have, to, you have to work with me so that we can think together and build this foundation that seems reasonable in the context of what God's best design and purpose for the body is. Now, what we've learned is that the human body is sacred. It is a sacred thing. Pope John Paul II actually argued, and I think argued well, for the notion that the human body is actually a means of grace. In other words, the human body is a conduit that God uses not only to minister to us, it's a method, it's a means, it's a, it's a process that God uses, a medium that God uses to actually touch us in our lives and to touch people around us. For example, we baptize our bodies, the sacrament of baptism. When we take Holy Communion, we ingest the symbolic body and blood of Christ into our bodies. We see the truth with our eyes. We read it. We hear it with our ears. We confess our faith with our lips. So time and time again, we lay hands on people who are sick or to commission them for special service for Jesus' sake. And so the human body is a conduit, a means, if you will, of God's grace so that theology actually touches anthropology through our bodies. And so God declares that our bodies are sacred. They shouldn't be tossed around and used in any frivolous way or any way that, that we think appropriate or in keeping with trends in culture or anything like that. Our bodies are important, and they, indeed they are sacred. So we've learned that. And the other thing that we've learned is just a foundation is that our relationships are covenantal. Now contrast covenant with, with the, the, the current themes in our culture today that that find relationships to be commodity-driven, just another thing you can discard and pick a new one up on the shelf. If, if I, being married to this woman is, doesn't make me happy, then I'll, maybe I'll be married to this man. And, and so we, we treat marriage, for example, like a commodity. It's utilitarian. It's self-focused. It's the, it's the vision of the world that tends to drive us away from a relationship with God and actually separates people in relationship with one another. And so we hear that relationships... And God's best design and plan and purpose is related to covenant. Marriage, let me just use that as an illustration, is designed to reflect God himself. You have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity, the Godhead. And, and so God wants our marriages to reflect the same covenant and community that God has with himself in the Godhead so that the highest value of marriage the highest value is actually to reflect the notion that our God is a covenant-keeping God. So when a man and a woman engage in marriage in a covenant relationship for life, this is a sign of, an image of, a, 
a, a, a pointing toward. It's a reflection of, it's a mirror image of God's covenant faithfulness with us. So as we are faithful with one another, we give witness to the world that the God we serve is a covenant-keeping God. It's, a, it's an important aspect of marriage, the highest value. So we laid a foundation from the first passage that we looked at two weeks ago from Matthew 19. And this is when some other religious leaders approached Jesus with this question. Today we got one question about whose, whose wife will she be in eternity. Now this question in Matthew 19 related to marriage and divorce. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And Jesus responded to that by saying, well, you know, I understand that divorce happens, and I understand why it happens. And he said that Moses allowed for divorce, and actually Moses allowed for polygamy as well back in the day. And he said the reason for this is because the hardness of people's hearts. In other words, they became callous toward God's best design and idea and plan. And so Moses, not understanding the plan or caving into the pressures of culture at the time, issued this decree of divorce and said, okay, you can divorce your wife. Jesus said, I understand why it happened. Then he added this phrase, but in the beginning, this was not so. In other words, Jesus was teaching the disciples then, and he's teaching us now that the, that the standards of our relationships in covenant with one another have not changed. God doesn't change his mind depending on the current trends or, or majority vote or cultural mores. God's standards are consistent all the way through time. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's about covenant, one man, one woman for life. And so that's God's original design. And so Jesus is saying, look, you can ask any question you want. You can ask about, you can ask about uh, homosexual behavior. For example, is it lawful for a man to marry a man? Or is it lawful for a man to be, attempt to become a woman? Or is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? These are just questions that come along in history. And Jesus reminds us that I understand why those behaviors and those patterns are embraced. I get it. He, God, Jesus understands it's a broken world and people are wounded and confused and all of us are stumbling along. He understands that. So he said, I understand why that happens, but from the beginning, this was not so. So therefore, we lay a foundation of understanding what God expects in all of our relationships, that our bodies are sacred, actually a means of grace, and that our relationships are based on covenant, not as a commodity, not out of convenience, not just merely for, for happiness or companionship or sexual fulfillment or economic efficiencies. All of those things are practical things in relationship, but it's not the highest value, which is covenant before God. All right, now, now that's, a, that's where we are so far. Now let's try to make the application to our text today and understand what God would have to say to us about singleness and celibacy. There is, there is this word singleness, which we should understand is not a biblical word. It's more of a, a, a modern term. And singleness in today's culture, now Anyone in the room can, can explain what the definition of being a single man or woman in today's culture is. You look at any movie, you look at any sitcom, you look at anything that, that culture produces as, as a profile of a, of a person who is single, especially a young person who is single, and you'll get a response that these are people who are selfish, there are people who are self-absorbed, and these are people who are sexually promiscuous. 
I mean, being a, being a, a young single man depicted in our culture is a guy who's just, who's just running loose. And oftentimes the same is true for women who are depicted as single. Now, if we mean, on the other hand, about singleness, that it's single-minded focus or exclusivity of intent or an undivided life focused on a relationship with God and a covenant with him and trying to live in a God-honoring way, now you begin to get closer to a biblical model of what singleness is about. The Apostle Paul, whom you may recall, was a single guy, and proudly so. He said, he said that, that people can choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of God. And so we begin to build some insight. So today's passage from Mark chapter 12, you remember the story. The Sadducees set up this hypothetical situation. A woman goes through seven husbands. They all die, then she dies without any children. And so in the resurrection, in eternity, who's Whose wife will she be? Which of these seven? And Jesus responds to that. And in verse 25, he says, When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. Now we say, what? Wait. Did Jesus really say that? Did he really say that in heaven there's not going to be any marriage? That's what he said. Does that mean I won't be married to Beth in the resurrection? That's what that means. That's what that means. There are three statements at the top of your outline that I'm going to put on the screen this morning just to make as, as clear as possible. And here's the first one. Check it out. Marriage on earth as we know it will come to an end. Now before you panic, before you get upset about that, let's, let's just unpack that for a second. Even marriage, as glorious as it is, is a pointer it's a sign, it's an image, it's a type of something else. Marriage is an image of God. Now, I've already talked about this this morning. Remember, the highest value in marriage is to reflect the fact that our God is a covenant-keeping God, right? And so marriage is essentially a reflection or a type of or an example of the faithfulness that God has in his own community as the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and a reminder to the world that our God is a covenant-keeping God. So marriage is an image of that. In, in Ephesians chapter 5, we hear the Apostle Paul. Some of you are familiar with this passage. It's about mutual submission. So the Apostle Paul says, now look, in marriage you should be mutually submitted. For example, wives should be submitted to their husbands as unto the Lord. And Husbands should love their wives as Christ loves the church. And he goes on and he just, he muses about that for several verses. And then he, and then he summarizes. And he says, now all of this to say, uh, what I've been, all of this is about what I'm talking about. And what I'm talking about is, and as you're reading along, you go, well, yeah, you're talking about marriage. Because that's all you've been talking about. But this is what he says. Uh, all of this to say, what I'm really talking about is the mystery of Christ and his church. What? Wait a minute, I thought you were talking about marriage. He says, no, no, I'm talking about Christ and his relationship with the church. So here's my point. All of these texts are about something deeper, more profound. We are all moving towards something in eternity that is some, somewhat like what the world is like, but different. In eternity, it'll, it'll look somewhat like the covenant relationships we have here, but they'll be more profound. 
in eternity, uh, the relationships that we have, even as intimate as it is in marriage, will be different, more profound, and more fulfilling. Here's the promise. Here's the promise from God. Listen, it's going to be different, more profound, but there's not going to be marriage. So that just you two will be, be hanging out for eternity together. This is going to be so glorious, so wonderful, that it's going to be better and it's going to be greater than it's ever been on the earth. And so this is the promise that God gives us. In eternity, there's going to be no need for marriage because there'll be no need for an example of God's covenant relationship. No need for a pointer. You know, love your wife as Christ loves the church is no longer a necessary standard because Christ will be with his church. will be engulfed in the very presence of the triune God. There'll be no need for a mirror reflection when we will stand in the very presence and glory of God. So here's what... Here's what the apostle and the other New Testament writers promise. No matter how good it is right now, it's going to be better then. So this is why we pick up the phrase uh, as people who follow Jesus, no matter how good it is, how great it is, how fulfilling it is now, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. No matter how, how high you climb, no matter how much glory you experience, no matter how much fulfillment you, you realize, the best is yet to come. The Apostle Paul said it this way, that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of men what God has in store for those who love him. All, all I'm saying, all I'm reporting today is that no matter how great you think it might be, it's going to be greater still. Greater still. And that's the promise. So we live in this already kingdom of God, but not yet fully realized. The rule and reign of God is currently breaking in. To our world, and we can see it in the lives of people all around us who choose to live in covenant relationship with each other and to honor God in covenant marriage because it points to the faithfulness and covenant keeping nature of God. But all of this is falling short of what is yet to come, even though it breaks in and evidences itself in these examples that we can live in. It is not yet consummated in its fullness, and when it is, it's going to be bigger and better than we can imagine. So I hope you can hang on to that. So now back to this singleness and celibacy, because this comes into play. Some people have a particular sensitivity to the grandness that is to come in eternity regarding marriage. Some people in this life have the gift in this age that will be shared by all of us in the age to come. Now, here's the, here's the next statement. It's at the top of your outline. I want to make it clear. A call to singleness and celibacy is a temporal anticipation of the resurrected life. This is the, this is the gift that Christ refers to. He said, not everybody can do this, only those who are called. That's the phrase that Jesus used in Matthew 19. Not everybody can live up to this standard, only those who are called. So in other words, it's a special capacity. And if you have that gift then you're called to live in the present age as if you already embodied the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is this big ceremony yet to happen in eternity when, when the, the bride of Jesus Christ, that's you and me and all of us, will be presented to the bridegroom, Jesus himself, the Christ, spotless and blemish and unblemished, and, and, and there's going to be a marriage supper. There's going to be a ceremony in heaven. This big reception, if you will, of God and the church 
finally being united forever. So most of us have the opportunity to mirror this reality in the context of our marriage covenant, but others of us have the higher calling, listen to it now, the higher calling of mirroring this truth in the context of singleness and celibacy. Married to Christ, devoted to his church. So let me give you four quick things here that are a reflection, a definition, an insight into singleness and celibacy. Here's number one. Write this down if you like. Singleness is a gift of God. It's a gift of God. 1 Corinthians 7, 7 and Matthew 19, 11. These are both moments where the Apostle Paul and Jesus himself are reminding us that to be single and celibate is really a gift of God. It's a gift of God. Now, if you've taken a spiritual gifts test, some, some, some folks, it's a smaller number of folks, but some folks will actually score high on celibacy. I always score zero on celibacy, for example. You know, like 15 is the highest score you can get on a particular test we take. And so when you go through the list, you go, okay, leadership. All right, I score 12. Um, um, faith, I score a 14. Um, mercy, two. I get a two. <laughs> All the way down to celibacy, where I score a zero. <laughs> I, have, I have no capacity for celibacy. None whatsoever. That's me. But there are some, I'm talking to someone in the room right now. You will score 14 or 15 on celibacy. Because God has given you that gift. And you know it. It's resonant within you. Yeah, it's a very powerful thing. So the single person can devote themselves more fully to Christ and therefore can engage the deeper communions with Christ that marriage only points to in shadows. And you can begin doing that right now. The Apostle Paul said, he said a lot about singleness because you know, that was his orientation. And, and so when you summarize what the Apostle Paul said about it, you could say it like this. If you're called to marriage, you do well. If you're called to singleness, you do even better. So singleness is a gift. Now here's the second thing. You might want to write this. Singleness has advantages. I've been talking about those. One of those is that single people are spared the troubles of marriage. Now this is a word that the Apostle Paul uses. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians 7.28. I'm about to discourage everybody who's married. He said, but if you, if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she's not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. Now, that's from an old, that's from an old bachelor. He said, I want to say, I've noticed, I just observed people who are married, they've got troubles. <laughs> and if you can avoid that, it will be better. <laughs> so it's encouraging, isn't it? Beth and I had some trouble this morning. We woke up, you know... Uh, you wake up on a Sunday and you can understand you've got this prescribed schedule and there's a, there's a lot of things going in your mind. And, and so Sunday morning is, is kind of a scramble and so you, you wake up the best you can and get moving. And, and our apartment has uh, different places that we can get rid, ready separately. So she went to her room, I went to my room, and we quickly realized that the water heater's not working. <laughs> I know. It couldn't have been last week when it's 85 degrees outside and you take a cool shower and you go, this is pretty refreshing. But this morning, hmm, not so much. And so it was a quick shower and, 
And uh, then, we, you know, we're, we're getting ready, and I decide, well, I'm going to try to light the pilot on that, fir- on that water heater. So, <laughs> so I'm down on all fours, you know, in this really confined space, and I, you know, I got my bifocals on and my, my light and the whole thing. I'm trying to get this thing punched up. And Beth thought it would be a good idea for her to stand over me and chirp at me about how to best light the pilot on the water heater. Everyone say trouble. It's trouble. Got troubles. Here's someone said something funny back there, I guess. Some some people so, so single people can devote themselves more fully to the work of God. So Paul goes on in, later in 1 Corinthians 7. He said, I'd like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs. But a married man, how he can please his wife. His interests are divided. Makes perfect sense, right? An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of the world and how she can please her husband. So you, under, you understand the advantage. But let me just remind you that this is not a zero-sum game. The culture in which we live does not accommodate what I'm teaching in this series, not even a little bit. And so we have to be aware of what culture squeezes us and presses us into thinking and practicing and contrast it with what God's best design is. So the world creates this zero-sum game with people who are single and married, and there's this animosity that exists. And so in the culture, the only way to honor singleness is by debasing marriage. Marriage is bad. Marriage is terrible. I'm not even sure if it's even important. It's just a piece of paper. No one cares about it anymore. Uh, And so you have cohabitation taking place, a direct result of a redefinition that culture has made away from God's best design and plan, away from covenant and into convenience, into a commodity, Well, everybody's doing it. It must be okay. We're not sure about marriage. Culture questions marriage. Heck, the Supreme Court's redefined marriage. So it must be malleable. Malleable. I mean, the definitions must shift and change and sort depending on the pressure points of culture in a particular time. So, you know, God must, you know, half of the church is confused about it. Teachings of the church, leaders of the church, they don't even know what it means anymore either. So God must be up there, you know, changing his mind. So it must be okay. And, and folks wait longer and longer and longer to get married. And it's a direct result of the attack, this zero-sum game that's played between singleness and being married in our culture. And it has nothing to do I promise you, nothing to do with God's original intent and design for these relationships. The, 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 culture, the, the culture attacks marriage. The, the culture fosters the gender wars, driving people in solitude, away from each other. And I, and I mentioned this last week, that fear, guilt, and shame is what motivates people away from the other away from God and away from each other. And so, so we have these gender wars that are being played out in the craziness of our current culture. And all the while God is saying, listen, man, men and women are better together. 
I designed you two to go together. I have complimented you, one with the other. You're better together, not apart. And so you have to, you have to resist all, you know, the song of the culture, the siren song that tempts you into, into the mainstream and everybody thinks this way and everybody acts this way and everybody does it this way. You have to, you have to stand your ground. You have to stand up for what you know to be right and, and then begin to live into that. And the great challenge and opportunity for the church today isn't to be against something or, or contrary toward a certain behavior or lifestyle. That doesn't help anybody. The opportunity that's before the church is, look, these are the original ideals of God and the standards of God. Let's see how many of us can live up to those standards or close to them anyway and maybe show the world that there's a more joyful way and there's a better song to sing that's more satisfying and more fulfilling, more gratifying. Maybe even provoke the world to jealousy by the quality of the covenant relationships we keep. That's the opportunity before us. So singleness has its advantages and all of that. And here's number three. Singleness is hard. It's hard. Genesis 2.18, this is when God commissioned Adam to name all the animals. And he finished naming all the animals and discovered there's no one suitable for him as a companion. And so God looks down at that and says, it's not good. Not good for man to be alone. So I'll make a helper suitable for him. So by definition, singleness is life alone. It's a unique challenge. And the practical aspects of marriage uh, that include companionship and sexual fulfillment, economic efficiencies, and this whole list of practicalities that come with marriage are things that the single person now has to manage. Has to manage the whole idea of companionship. Manage the sexual energy. Manage the cultural expectations. So it's, it's not easy. It's hard. And that's why it requires the gift of God to do it graciously. So singleness is a challenge. It's hard. Here's the last thing. Singleness is not permanent. Singleness is not permanent. Many who are presently single, all you single people in the room today, listen to me. This is, this is just a statement for you. Many who are presently single will one day marry. Because it's in your heart to do that. Maybe you want to do that. Maybe it's a longing to do that. And there are single people all around us who will one day marry. So be encouraged. It's, it's probably going to happen someday. Others, though, will remain single throughout their lives. And that's okay, too. But here's my point. No Christian will remain single forever. No single will remain Christian will remain single forever. Revelation 7, 17, 19, 7 talks about the great supper of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is already, even as we speak, being prepared. Marriage supper of the Lamb. It's, the, the preparations are in order. It's going to happen, and it's going to be grand and great. Now, here's a final word for those who are single, final word for those of us who are married. First of all, if you're single... Thank God for the gift of singleness. Whatever your experience, recognize it as a gift from God. Make the most of it for as long as you have it because it's a great gift and it's, it's of high value. Then second of all, do all you can to be godly. Do all you can to be godly. Selfish, self-centered, sexually indulgent. You know, the definition that the culture gives for singleness, replace that with self-discipline and a desire to live a holy life 
that is, that is honorable to God. We live in this sexually charged culture. There was the understatement of the day right there. Did you hear it? We live in a sexually charged culture. Are you kidding? But what power does your life as a, as a single person living honorably, managing all of these issues that the, the culture and the world says, you need to indulge yourself. You're single. You got no overhead. You got no attachments. Just go for it. Do whatever you want. And how powerful your witness is to a sexually charged culture when you live in an honorable way, managing all of these issues submitted to Christ. Do you hear that? Do all you can to be godly. And then keep your eyes fixed on heaven. Because sooner or later, all of us are going to be married as the bride of Christ to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. <laughs> so it's really going to be better than you can imagine. And now a final word to those of us who are married. Don't think of singleness as second best. In fact, the New Testament teaches, as I've described, New Testament teaches singleness as first best. Being single and celibate is first best. Being married is second best. That's, that's the pecking order. So, so make sure you, you have the right perspective. And so stop asking single people if they're still single. Don't. Single people, if, they, if people keep bugging you about this, your mother keeps bugging you, your siblings keep bugging you, your, your work associates, your, your family, just look at them and say, are you still married? <laughs> Some, just get them to get quiet. And second, remember your family if you're married, remember your family is the whole church. Get away from the culture wars. Get away from that if you can. As the people of God, we're given the opportunity to rise up and define and celebrate these states of being both married and single as the glorious gifts of God that they are to us. And then just like singles, married people need to keep our eyes fixed on heaven because one of these days we're all going to be there and it's going to be glorious. So in all these ways, we seek to honor one another, remembering that our bodies are sacred and that God has called us in relationship at the level of covenant. And in so doing, we reflect the character and nature of God and give witness to the world that God has great things in store for us. Who has an ear, let him hear. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for this uh, simple passage. And we thank you, Lord, for Jesus who help us see the things clearly. And so, Lord, bless us today, both as married persons and as single persons. Help us to see the gift and the glory that each represent. And, Lord, then make us all faithful in our witness and our influence for you. We pray in Jesus' name for his sake. And everyone said, amen. amen. Would you stand with us now as we sing? <laughs>